Thank you, brother. Look at that. I'm, listen, I'm always there. Don't you worry about it. I'm always looking. I want to share with you uh, from 1 Samuel today, chapter 16, as we finish up this look at the Old Testament view of kingship. And we've been following, in particular, this saga uh, through the people desiring a king and them choosing Saul. And we saw the Lord's rejection of Saul because of his sin and rebellion against God. And now what we're going to look at today is God's choice. Because so often what God has to do is show us the sin and error of our uh, choices and our rebellion against God before he provides and shows us his goodness. And so we've been looking at that step by step. And today we're going to finish in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I know Billy said we had one verse. I gave him one verse to read, but we have a few more to go over. Do not hold that against me. But in chapter 16, we see David chosen by God. And there's a few things I want to bring out because the reason we've been studying this is because we're preparing for Advent to prepare our hearts to to celebrate Jesus' first Advent, that he came to this earth as a human being, was born, and would subsequently live, die, and rise again for our redemption. And so what we've been looking at is why Jesus as king mattered. Why, why did Jesus, why did we need Jesus? Why didn't other human kings fill the void? Why didn't they fit the bill? And what we've been looking at is throughout Israel's history, there has been a pattern of rejection of God, a need to be restored, the grace of God in restoring them, followed by their rebellion again. And at some point, the cycle had to be broken. At some point, there had to be a king or a leader who would lead God's people and not fail or stumble. And we see in in the life of Saul, the rebellion against God of the people's king, and now God's choosing of his own king. 1 Samuel chapter 16 Let's begin in verse 1. Everybody there with me? 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. And what I want to show you at the very, very beginning is that God has a plan. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Right from the very beginning of this chapter, after the contrast of Saul's failure and his rebellion against God, what do we see in contrast? We see that God does indeed have a plan. Simply because Saul blew it did not mean that God was not in control didn't mean that God's plan had been thwarted or that somehow God wasn't going to achieve what he desired. Right here in verse 1, God says to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Why would Samuel grieve over Saul? Well, he had sinned against God. Who's going to lead God's people? God had given them a king in Saul that they had asked for, and now he was being disposed. Who was going to lead God's people? 
I'm sure that in some of that grieving is, God, who's going to do this? We thought he was the one. And we're told God asks Samuel, how long are you going to grieve? That means that he, can, he kept on grieving. It was a continual grieving. He wouldn't stop grieving over the fact that Saul had fallen and that the kingdom had been taken from him. God says, how long are you going to grieve? That question implies that the time for grieving is coming to an end because God has a plan. He tells him, how long are you going to grieve? And then tells him, commands him to fill his horn with oil and go. God says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So God says very definitively that he has a plan, even in Saul's failure, God had a plan to provide for his people, and he was going to do it in his time and in his way, and he calls Samuel to obey and go. Now, here's the thing. I would have liked a few more details. What details does God give to Samuel? Go find a guy named Jesse. Where is he? He's a Bethlehemite, so he's in Bethlehem. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Just so you know, many times God does not provide all the details to his plan. And I think he does it on purpose. Because it requires Samuel to trust that when he gets to Bethlehem, there's going to be a guy named Jesse, and that guy named Jesse's going to have multiple sons. But he doesn't give him all the details. And just so you know, in the midst of us trying to figure our way through life, it's always helpful to understand that God has a plan, and he knows it, and that's all that matters. God doesn't say we get to know it, just that he knows it. How long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have a king I have chosen for my people. Now go to the man I tell you to. God can sometimes be this way of not wanting to give us the details to every little part of his plan, but rather pushing us to trust that he does have a plan and he will accomplish it. And notice what his plan is for. His plan is to provide a king for his people. That God's plan is to care for his people. Now remember what's going on around them. Not everything is sunshine and rainbows. What they have around them is nothing but rebellion and destruction and a king who's been put away and the kingdom is ripped from his hands. It seems like everything is chaos. And out of that, God says, I have a plan to provide for my people in the midst of that chaos. When everything seems to be falling apart, God says, I got this. I can't tell you how glad I am to hear that on a regular basis. That when everything seems to be falling apart, even if I don't have the details to the whole plan, I know God has a plan and he's going to accomplish it for my good and for yours. Notice how Samuel responds to this call. 
Samuel said in verse 2, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now, Samuel seems to fear what's about to happen. Why would he fear? What's happened that has now caused Samuel to be fearful of what Saul would do to him? Listen, when you start ripping power out of people's hands, they might act in desperate ways. And it seems in some ways Samuel is concerned of how Saul is going to respond to his little trip to Bethlehem. If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Just so you know, sometimes God's plan looks like it's going to end in your demise. Sometimes God calls us to do things that when you look at it, you go, that ain't good. This ain't going to end well. But notice God doesn't go, oh, well, I didn't think about that. Well, let's rework. No. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. Now, again, God starts to give some of the details. But then when you think, oh, he's going to lay the whole thing out, what does he do? I will show you what you shall do. <laughs> Come on, just lay the whole thing out. Let's go, step by step. No, he says, I'll give you a little bit more. You need to trust me, go. And then he says, you shall anoint for me, verse 3, you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. So again, God says, I'm giving you a little bit, but you got to trust me. I got a plan, and it's going to come about. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Now, that's good news. He obeyed. Even though he's wondering, am I going to get killed for this? Is this all going to work out? He goes. And he came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him. And guess what they're doing? Trembling. Why? They're afraid. Of what? We don't know for sure, but they're afraid when Samuel shows up. I get the picture that this might be the occasion of when you got called in the principal's office at school. You didn't know, is this good or bad? And so when the principal shows up, you're trembling. You don't even know what's going on yet. Samuel shows up. The elders of the city are already trembling. They ask him, do you come peaceably? I wonder if they're concerned about how Saul figures into all this. Are you coming as his right hand to do something to us? Verse 5. And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate or sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. God has a plan, and it is a weird one. And it's filled with a lot of trust. Because God's not giving them every detail. He's simply saying, follow what I'm saying. Trust me. I got a plan. I'm going to do it. I've got a king that I've chosen myself for my people. Trust me. It's going to come together. And notice Samuel obeys what he says. Here's the thing. Number one, God has a plan. We got to trust him. That's not easy all the time, but it is absolutely necessary. We trust him because God knows what he's doing. He's not stumbling about trying to piece things together. He is the sovereign king of the universe. That's a good note to write down, by the way. That's a great note to keep. God is the sovereign king of the universe. He accomplishes everything he desires to accomplish. Nothing can stop God's 
plan. Just one. Thank you, Lisa. Just one amen will suffice. Y'all, God is bigger than everything else in the world, in the universe. No one controls him. He does according to his pleasure. That's good news as a Christian because we're all living life scared to death of what's happening around us, what that guy's going to do, what this group of people is going to do. We walk around scared and nervous, and we have the king of all the universe who says, I'm going to do exactly what I purpose to do, and it is for our good. Isn't that good news when everything around us seems to be falling apart? I mean, that's got to get you excited at some point in your day because everything falls apart around you. Everything does eventually. It's good to know that God is not like us, sitting around last minute trying to piece everything together. He has a plan from before the creation of anything. He had a plan of how he was going to save his people. That's good news. Because no one can stop it from happening. God was going to save me in 1996. And guess what? No one could stop it. Not even Jason running around like a chicken with his head cut off doing this and that and trying to accomplish his goals. Guess what? God purposed he was going to save me in 1996, and guess what he did? And every person in this room who is saved, you were saved purposefully by God. It was his plan. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't circumstantial. God planned before the foundation of the world he was going to save your soul. And he did it. Woo! I don't know about you. That's good. Some of you are going to get really excited about that later on. You're going to be eating lunch. You're going to be like, whoa, God is big and awesome. Number one, God has a plan. He doesn't tell us we're supposed to know it. He knows it, and that's enough. Number two, God chooses rightly. This is important because God doesn't make mistakes when he chooses. God doesn't make mistakes. Saul was not a mistake. Saul was the purposeful plan of God that he was going to give the people what they wanted so that he could show them that what they needed more than anything was the, God, was the king God was choosing for them, not the ones they were choosing for themselves. But Saul was not a mistake. He was part of the plan of God. And God always chooses rightly. Verse 6. When they came, meaning all the people come for the sacrifice and for this time of worship of God. When they came, he, meaning Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So, what part of the plan does Samuel know? A dude named Jesse. He lives in Bethlehem. And he got some boys. The king is one of them. Samuel don't know which one. But he knows it's Jesse who lives in Bethlehem who's got sons. So when they gather together for the time of worship, Samuel starts going down the line. Right? This is what you, you got. You just narrow it down and you start whittling away. The first one who steps up is Eliab, the oldest. Right? Because that's what we naturally do. We start with the oldest and the biggest. And when Samuel looks on Jesse's first son... He says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel says, this has got to be the guy. Uh-oh. Anybody else catch what's happening? Who is Samuel looking like when he does this? 
He's looking like all the people of Israel who said we need a king and they chose Saul. What were Saul's qualifications? Good looking, tall, wealthy. When Samuel sees Eliab, guess what he first starts to do? Oh, this guy's got, he looks the part. <laughs> he's, he's the oldest and got to be the one. Samuel is starting to pick a king like the people of Israel chose a king. And how did God feel about that? How did that go first time around? So just so you know, Samuel naturally starts to walk down that path too. And guess what? Every single one of us starts to do that too. Every time we have to pick out the king, we start looking according to what we think matters. And what do hum what human beings look at? God tells us. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, God's got to correct Samuel just like he had to correct the people of Israel. He looks at Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his what? Appearance. God says, we ain't doing Saul 2.0, just so you know. Don't look on his appearance or what else? The height of his stature. Don't look at kings like you would look at Saul. How'd that go for you last time? When you looked at their appearance and the height of their stature, how did that go for you? Didn't go well, did it? So don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature. Here's why. God says, because I have rejected him. God says, that's not my pick. Yikes. And as Christians, we say we want God to choose our king for us, but yet when he does, we look back and go, I'd rather not. I got someone else in mind. But God says the reason why they weren't to, why Samuel wasn't to look on appearances or the height of his stature is because God says, I have rejected him. I haven't chosen him. Doesn't matter if you think he looks good as a king. He's not the one I've picked. And he gives us the reason why. Because for, because the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks, and then he defines it. How do, how do human beings look at things? From external appearances. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks differently. The Lord looks on the heart. I believe verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16 is the entire point of 1 and 2 Samuel, the books. They all wrap around this idea that the way God chooses is different than the way human beings choose. Because human beings choose wrongly, but God always chooses rightly. Why? Because he doesn't look at external appearances. He looks at the heart. See, the things we find significant are only the things that we can touch and see. We do it in church all the time because everybody in the room is counting how many people are here today. How did that match up to last week? Had that match up to three weeks ago? Had that match up to five years ago? Had that match up to 25 years ago? And we judge based on what we see. We try to judge what God is doing. Guess what that falls into? Humans look at the external appearance. God looks at the heart. 
See, what God's teaching us is that his economy is different than ours. The way he views things is different than the way we do because he looks at the heart, not simply external appearance. And just so you know, that can either be comforting or terrifying, probably both at the same time. How is it terrifying? Well, it means that God knows everything you feel and think. Anybody excited about that fact? Or are you all trying to hide? See, it's a, it's a terrifying thought when you think that God sees even the heart, not just external appearances. He can tell the difference between those who are really his children in a church and who are just faking it to look right. That's scary. Right? He's the one who's able to say in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you, even though you did externally all the things you were supposed to. Right? Because he doesn't see as a man sees, he sees the heart. So it's terrifying in that manner because it means we can't hide anything from God. But it can also be comforting. You know why? Because even knowing that God knows my heart, he still loved me. And sent Jesus to die for me. See, it's comforting because it means when God chose me to be his child, he didn't make a mistake. And he didn't choose me based on my goodness. He, he didn't decide to save Jason because he was a good guy who deserved it. He saved me even though he knew my wretched heart. See, that's comforting. Because what it means is when God rescues people, he's not doing it because they look good. He's doing it because he knows they're desperate sinners who need forgiveness and redemption. That's good news. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians earlier today? God didn't choose that, which was, he chose the weak of the world, right? Chose the foolish. He's doing that to show that he always chooses rightly. And he doesn't choose based on our external appearances. He chooses based on his own pleasure and grace. And that's good news. Because otherwise, if God chooses like we do, we're going to end up with Saul 2.0. But what the people needed was a king that God had chosen for them. So Eliab, they say, well, this isn't the guy. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab. He's next, made him pass before Samuel. Almost get that like, here's my next boy. Check him out. Almost like, you know, he's strong. He... They line him up there and just keep walking him in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. <laughs> Poor Benadab. All right, boy, move along. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. All right, Shema, get on going, boy. You can imagine, right? <laughs> Why not me? Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Notice, that's already the third time he's said that exact same phrase. The Lord has not chosen this one or these. Anybody else wonder why God didn't just say to Samuel, it's David. It's David. 
Why this whole charade of, okay, call one up. No, it's not him. Call next. No, it's not him. Next. No, it's not him. Next. No, it's not. Why the whole charade of all seven of them? Why didn't God just say, hey, Samuel, there's a guy named Jesse in Bethlehem. He's got a son named David. He's out in the field. Go get him. Is it possible God is trying to show us something by laying them all out in front of him and keep passing them by? Because remember, the whole point is verse 7. According to human thinking, you start with the oldest, you work your way down. That's how it always goes. But God doesn't operate that way. Instead, God bypasses all the ones who everybody would think would be the natural king. And then verse 11 happens. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Samuel knows. Like, wait, God told me it was one of your sons. We've rejected everybody so far. There's got to be more. Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. Oh, there's no way. Listen, even Jesse looks on David and thinks it can't, it can't be that one. Boy, you just stay out there with the sheep. We'll handle grown folk business. We'll call you back when it's... Even David's own dad wasn't thinking, oh, David, yeah, he's the guy. Because he says, the youngest, I love the fact he calls him the youngest. We don't, he doesn't even say David's name yet. We don't even find out David's name until verse 13. We go through this whole charade and we're still calling him the youngest. The youngest is keeping the sheep. Because that's where you expect your king to be. Keeping sheep. pretty bad when your own dad don't, doesn't think you qualify. And yet, God is going to choose him when nobody else considered him as a possibility. And this whole idea of choosing the youngest, this is a common refrain throughout the Old Testament, that God continually chooses the youngest rather than the oldest. Why? Because God sees not as man sees. He sees the heart. The, if you notice, when you read the Old Testament, guess who God's always choosing? It's always the youngest one. It's never the oldest like you think or the powerful one like you think. It's always the youngest one whom God is chasing after. Why? Because he sees differently. Samuel said to Jesse, verse 11, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. David has now become the guest of honor. And Samuel says, we're not even going to sit down until this boy comes in. Oh, how things have changed. God has a plan, and he knows it, and God is always right when he chooses. And even though everybody else looked at David and said, that can't be the guy, God says, that is the king I have chosen. Verse 12 he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy, where it also means red-haired. Probably had red hair. Had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Just in case you thought the prerequisite to being a leader for God is that you be ugly. It's not, just because God is using songs and he's handsome, it's not him, doesn't mean you got to be ugly. Okay? Everybody's like, Jason's a perfect fit. <laughs> 
It's not because he was, handsome is not a disqualifier. But what God is saying is that appearances don't matter. Handsome or otherwise, appearances don't matter when it comes to God's choosing. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful God doesn't look for the models to save, but he saves regular dudes like me, right? I'm thankful that God's not out scouring going, who's the most attractive and the most knowledgeable and the, and the smartest? I'm going to pick them because if so, it ain't me. But I'm grateful that external appearances do not matter to God. What matters to him is the heart. Oh, I hate to step on some toes. Can I step on some toes real quick, including my own? God doesn't care what clothes you wear here to church. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm not saying show up in your PJs. But God's main concern when you show up here is not, are you wearing jeans? Are you wearing a suit? Are you wearing slacks? Are you wearing dress socks? Are you wearing a tie? Are you doing anything? God's main focus when we come together as a church is not to look at the external appearance and go, man, they got it looking good. Because we can put all those things on and not love Jesus. What God cares about, now again, don't show up in your PJs. I'm, I'm cool with you looking nice. But realize your heart is what matters to God. He wants your heart more than he wants your dress code. And I'm thankful for that, even though I think I do look kind of, I look all right today. Because appearances, so look, he's ruddy, beautiful eyes, handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, I wonder how many people around are going, why are we anointing this guy? Right? Because not everybody was in on the plan. Only Samuel knows he's supposed to go and find this. So Samuel anoints him with oil, which is a big deal. And I wonder how many people in the room are going, why are we doing this? This guy? Why are we, why are we dealing with him? Including the other brothers. That guy? David? Really? I don't think so. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in. I love this. Catch what, catch what Samuel says. The Lord anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Y'all catch that? David's in the midst. He's got his brother standing around him, and he's being anointed as the king. When God has a plan, a lot of times he's going to move in ways that aren't how we would move. And it almost sounds very Joseph-like that Joseph is the one chosen over his brothers. But here, David is anointed with his brothers standing around him. God has a plan, and he knows it. God is always right when he chooses. And David is the king he has. We're told you keep going, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David wasn't a great king in and of himself. But what made him a great king is the empowering spirit of God. God graciously gives David the ability to rule his people well. It's not David who gets the credit. This text is not be like David. Hey, everybody, look at David. This whole, this whole text isn't about worshiping David. The whole text is about worshiping the God who gave David and empowered him to lead his people. 
God's the central focus. David is simply the human instrument God's going to use to accomplish his purposes of caring for his people. And aren't you glad that when God calls people to serve him and to minister for him, he empowers them to do it? It's not our power. It's Christ at work within his people. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Oh, the beautiful gift of God. Now, I remind you really quick. I'm closing up. I remind you really quick. David was about 20 years old when this happens. When Saul dies, David is about 30 years old. That means from... 20 years old to about 30 years old, guess what David's life looks like? Keep going. David's life is not a picture of a Hallmark movie. David's life over those 10 years is going to be filled with threats and violence and sin and brokenness and distress. His life is going to be turmoil during those 10 years. But guess what? He's the king God has chosen and empowered. And just so you know, when God chooses his people, it does not mean that life is going to be all sweet and nice. In fact, when God begins to work and to save his people, it's naturally going to stir up a bunch of junk. You can bet on it. But I tell you here that the grace of God is seen not in giving him a comfortable life, but in using David for his own purposes. So here's a couple of things I want to leave you with. Number one, praise God that he chooses the unexpected. <laughs> That's us. Praise be to God that he doesn't choose the brightest and the most beautiful, but chooses his people purposefully. It's in that that we can celebrate, that we were the weak that he rescued. We were the fools, and yet we are made great and we are exalted in Christ who lowered himself. Oh, praise God that he doesn't choose the best and the brightest, but chooses the unexpected. If you ever need to be reminded of that, I encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. And then number two, there's a quote by a theologian named Dale Ralph Davis who said this about this text. He said, quote, sometimes God has to save us from our saviors. Sometimes God has to save us from our saviors. What he means by that is in our lives, we try to save ourselves. We try to plan and plot according to our wisdom what we think should happen. We stop being dependent on God and we start trusting in our own saviors, the things that we cling to when life begins to spin out of control. And sometimes what God has to do is he has to save us from the very things we think will rescue us on their own. They thought Saul was their savior. And God had to rescue them from putting their trust in a man 
to putting their trust in God. Sometimes God has to rip our saviors from the clutches of our hands and cause us to trust him. And again, we're entering into Advent season where we celebrate the coming of Christ. Is there a better picture? Well, there is, but I, this is another great picture of a shadow of Jesus. Because in David, what you see, remember this text is not about be like David. This text is not about look at David. This whole text is pointing us to Christ. Can I point out a few things that should stick out to us? God provides the king of his choosing. Jesus was the ultimate example of that. The people wanted a conquering king who was going to overthrow Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. Jesus came talking about a heavenly kingdom. And that he was going to suffer to achieve that. Guess what the people said? We don't want him. But God provides the king of his choosing, and there was no greater example than Christ, the king that God chose for us. Notice also, where does this story take place? In Bethlehem. Where is Jesus going to come? Bethlehem. We're told here that when it comes to a king, appearances do not matter. Guess what we know about Christ? Appearances did not matter. You ever notice that? There's not a lot of descriptors of the physical appearance of Jesus. That might be intentional. That God didn't sketch a photo of Jesus for us as far as physical appearance. Why? Because appearances didn't matter. Anyone else notice that David was a shepherd? And Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. You notice that David quickly becomes the guest of honor when no one thought he was worthy of honor. And Christ is given the name that's above every name that we will gather around his table and eat because he's the guest of honor. Notice that uh, that David was anointed. The very definition of the Messiah is the anointed one. And did you notice that when David is chosen as king, the spirit rushes upon him? Does anybody remember in Jesus' ministry anything similar to this? Oh, wait. It's when he's standing in the Jordan and he's baptized. And we're told the spirit descended on him like a dove. And anyone else notice that David's life was marked by struggle and suffering and trial? As soon as the spirit descends on Christ... Guess where he goes? Not to a feast, not to a great celebration. He's carried out into the wilderness to be tempted and tried. See, this text is not look at David. This is God's way of saying that he has a plan. And no one knew what it was. 
He gave little bits of it, but they couldn't fully understand. He gave the prophets a glimpse of it, but they couldn't fully understand. But God knew his plan. And he knew the day that Jesus was going to come. He knew the day that Jesus would be provided to his people. And God's plan cannot be stopped. And on the appointed day, Jesus arrived just as God planned. God has a plan. And just so you know, God always chooses rightly. Jesus wasn't the king that we desired. He was the king we needed. And God knew that from before the creation of the world. He knew that Christ was going to die and rise again so that we could be saved. God has a plan. No one can stop it. And he always chooses rightly. Trust in this God. There is no other besides him. There is no other way to be redeemed than through the blood of Jesus given graciously by the Father so that his children could be saved. This morning, you don't need to come with a list of your external appearances of how you've measured up or how you've cleaned up your life or how you've straightened things up because you can't. What you come with this morning to Jesus is simply your heart laid bare before him, that you are a sinner, that you are broken, that you have rebelled against the king and you need his forgiveness above all else and that you believe that Christ is the only one who can save his people, that Jesus' death and resurrection was the only way that we could be rescued. What you need this morning is not to try and be king yourself or to find another who will fill the void, but to trust in the only true king, Jesus Christ, the only one who could pay for your sin, to believe and trust in him above all. And Christians in the room, we have to every single day remember God has a plan. And he always chooses rightly. Everything that comes our, on our path, everything that is before us that God sets there is purposeful. It is always according to his plan, and he always chooses rightly. Even the struggles, even the suffering, even the trials, they are part of God's plan, and he always chooses rightly. We need as Christians to trust him, not just in the good times, but when the king is calling for our head. And we're having to flee into caves. And we're having to run from our family. We always trust Christ. That he is the rightful king that we can depend on. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. That Jesus is the king that we need. And Father, I pray that every person in this room knows that. I pray that every person in this room has trusted in you. And God, if they're not, if they're trusting in their own goodness, if they're trying to trust in their external appearance to try and look right before you, God, I pray what you'll show them today is that they are nothing but sinners in need of rescue and redemption through your son Jesus. And so God, I pray you will draw them today. Draw them by your word. I pray that they see the truth of these verses and God, that they are drawn to you. And they see that they cannot find redemption any other place but at the feet of your son. And Father, I pray what they will see is that you have a plan and that Jesus is the king who you have rightly chosen to be the king of all kings.
And Father, I pray that you will help us to trust in you. And so, Lord, for those who have never trusted in you before, I pray today you would rescue their souls. Cause them to fall before you, to forsake their sin, to turn away from it, and to trust simply in the death and resurrection of Christ. That you might save their souls. And Father, I pray for all the Christians in the room that you would help us to trust you, God, when things around us seem to be falling apart. That we might rest in knowing that your word tells us that you have a plan and you always choose rightly. And so, God, everything you bring into our path as Christians is purposeful and it's for our good. Help us to cling to you when it doesn't feel that way. Help us to trust you when we don't see the plan. Help us to trust that you are the king of all kings and you're worthy of worship, no matter what our circumstances look like. Father, work in this place to cause us to love you more and to hate sin more. Father, I pray you'll rescue souls and give Christians joy to run after you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.